Would you join me in prayer? Oh God, You are great. You are awesome. We come before You in reverence and humility today. We praise You because You are the King. Because You rule over all things. We worship You because You have Your purposes and Your plans that can never be thwarted or turned aside. That Lord, whatever You determine comes to pass. We thank You, Lord, that, that You hold all things in Your hands. That even this world with its brokenness and evil and chaos and war, that somehow, Lord, You have a plan that is beyond our comprehension and yet it is being worked out. And every once in a while we see glimpses of what You're doing. But Lord, we just stand in awe that You are the sovereign God who rules over all things. And that in the end, You will bring glory to Your name. That You will save a people for Yourself that in the end You will reestablish righteousness in Your universe. And so, Lord, this morning we are confident in You. We put our hope in You. And, Lord, all of us have things in our lives that we are concerned about, that are question marks. Lord, forgive us for doubting You. Forgive us, Lord, for failing to put our trust in You. You are the great God. You reign above the circle of the earth. All the princes of the earth are like grasshoppers beneath You. All the nations of the earth are like dust in the scales. They're regarded as nothing because you are the great king. And so, Lord, we worship you this morning. We glorify you. And we thank you that you're a king who knows and cares about the most intimate details of our lives. And so, Lord, we love you and we trust you. And, God, we pray for your uh, hand to be at work in the lives of people in this room today in my life. God, we pray that you would keep working in our lives to transform us more into the image of Jesus. Lord, we want to be a people that look like Jesus. We want to have His character in our character. Lord, we want to be marked by the kind of radical, boundary-crossing love that Jesus had. Lord, we want to be people who pray the way Jesus prayed. We want to be people who love truth the way Jesus loved the truth. And Lord, we want to be filled up with total obedience to You the way Jesus was. Lord, we open the Bible and we find Jesus so attractive. God, make the character of Christ our character. Continue to work holiness into the lives of the people of this church. And God, we do pray for this upcoming missions banquet. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to give money to something that really matters, to world evangelization, to the, the name of Jesus and the hope of Jesus being taken to the distant parts of China and to the Middle East and to South uh, America and to Africa. God, we pray that, that you would just move our hearts to be generous. Lord, help me to be more generous in giving. Help me, Lord, to, to see what the eternal perspective is and not to be dumping my money into all the, the junk I dump it into that doesn't last. But Lord, help me to invest my life and my prayers in your kingdom. God, we pray for our speakers who are coming during our missions week, that they would stir our hearts to see your global glory. And God, I pray that you would just continue to work in our congregation to keep calling us to Yourself in, in this task of world evangelization. Lord, thank You for the children of this church. And we pray for the boys and girls in this church that they would know You, that they would love You, that they wouldn't simply be raised as church kids, but that they would truly come to know Christ. Lord, we pray for all the Sunday school teachers and Kids for Christ leaders and children's church workers and nursery workers, that You would work through them, Lord, to bring the Gospel and to bring the love of Jesus to the kids of this church. Lord, we pray for another generation to be raised up who would proclaim the name of Christ in their day when we are old and gone. May their children, Lord, continue to worship you. 
And Lord, I pray for this church, that it would continue to be a church that loves one another, that loves the Bible, that loves Jesus, that loves the lost, that loves you with all of our hearts and soul and mind and strength. And now, Lord, as we open up the Bible, we pray that you'd speak to us. We look forward to what you're going to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Well, we invite the children here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church. As the kids are going off to Children's Church, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. It's on page 1040, if you're using one of those pew Bibles. Page 1040, Luke chapter 19. And uh, just to point this out, you probably saw it already, but in your bulletin is a schedule of events of everything that's start happening starting next Sunday for our missions conference. And I, I would really appreciate it if you would just take a moment today to read through this and familiarize yourself with the different things that are going on during the missions conference to sign up for the banquet and all of that. It, it really is a privilege as a church to focus our minds to what God's doing all over the world. So here we are, Luke chapter 19. The triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Let me just read the text. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground and when they came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Well, at long last, my patient congregation, we come to Luke 19, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. I know you thought we'd never get here, but... Finally, Jesus comes to Jerusalem. Uh, the, the Gospel of Luke has been building and building up to this moment. Jesus has been out ministering among the crowds. He's been healing the sick. He's been teaching the Gospel. And as He's ministered, as we know, the crowds have grown. And so has the anticipation. The people are beginning to wonder, could this 
Jesus be the awaited Messiah. And so this anticipation has grown. And Jesus has been teaching his disciples. You know, as we've studied through Luke, every once in a while he'll pull his disciples aside. He'll say, now look, I'm going to Jerusalem. And I'm going to Jerusalem for a purpose, to be crucified and to be buried and to be raised. And, and so he's getting his disciples ready to understand that this is an important journey that he's taking. And so finally he comes to Jerusalem. And, of course, he's been to Jerusalem before. He was dedicated in the temple there as a baby. And as an observant Jew, Jesus would have gone to Jerusalem a couple times a year to celebrate the different festivals. And, in fact, this story, as we know, takes place during Passover. And so, along with Jesus coming into Jerusalem, there are literally tens of thousands of Jews coming as pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire, all coming to Jerusalem. But this time it's different. Jesus isn't just coming as a faithful, um, pious Jew to Jerusalem. He's coming to fulfill his destiny. He's coming to enter into what we as Christians look back on and we call Holy Week where Jesus was crucified and buried and raised and had his last supper. And of course, the day when Jesus comes into Jerusalem is called, we call today, Palm Sunday. So this is the text from which we get our Palm Sunday celebration. Because as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the people are laying down their cloaks. And we know in other Gospels that they're laying down palm branches in front of him to make like this kind of impromptu carpet, rolling out the red carpet for Jesus as he enters Jerusalem. So in this sort of pregnant moment in this climactic scene where Jesus is finally coming to Jerusalem, there's a question that jumps out, at least that came into my mind, and you're probably wrestling with the same question. Maybe you've been wrestling with it all week. Uh, The question that comes to my mind is, what's up with the donkey? Why is there such a focus on this donkey in the story? You know, it's like this... Huge thing. He's coming to Jerusalem. And then there's all this stuff about this colt, which we know from the other Gospels is a donkey. In fact, I was thinking about entitling the sermon, What's Up With the Donkey? I mean, it just seems out of place in this story. It's building, it's building, it's building. And then all this stuff about getting the donkey. is like, all right, you've got to go to Jerusalem. You've got to go into this town. There's going to be this donkey tied up. You've got to go to the guy. You've got to untie the donkey. If someone asks you about the donkey, you need to say the Lord needs it. And so they went to Jerusalem, and they found the donkey, and they untied it. And some guy came and said, why are you untying the donkey? And they said, the Lord needs it. And I'm like, what? So much detail. Why all this detail about this donkey? Uh, you know, it, this really bothered me as I was studying this passage, as you can tell. So uh, as I dug into it, and I was like, why this random story? I don't understand. It's such an important moment in Luke. Why all this stuff? about this animal and getting this animal and all the things that would happen. And, and as I you know, studied more, what I realized was that the, the riding in on the donkey is not a random element. It's central to the story because in that culture and in uh, Old Testament thought, to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey was to identify yourself as the king. This is what the king did. He rode on a donkey into Jerusalem to meet his people. It would be like if I told you someone just landed in Logan Airport on Air Force One. Who just landed? The president. You would know that. And so if in those days, if they said Jesus just came in on a donkey, everybody would know what that meant. They would be like, oh, he is the king. They were expecting a king, and this was a signal that it was a king. That's why it's so important. 
Another story about the donkey, I think, also shows Jesus' prophetic powers that God has given him. But I think that's even part, a smaller part of the larger point, which is that Jesus is coming as the king. There's a story in the Old Testament when King David is getting really old and sick, and people are like, eh, he doesn't have much time left, and you know, people are wondering when he's going to go. Who's going to be the king after King David? And so they're looking at all of King David's many sons, and, and all of his sons are starting to jockey for position. Who's going to be the next king? And one of them makes a move to be king. David gets wind of it. And David didn't want that son to be king. He wanted Solomon to be king. So he says to his advisors, he says, Quick, take Solomon, my son, and put him on my donkey. (laughs) And ride him into Jerusalem. And so here's all the people, you know, out in the fields. And they look, and there's Solomon on the king's donkey. And everyone knows, new king in town, because he got donkey. You have donkey, you're the king. You want to be the king? Here's the question. Got donkey, right? Jesus got donkey. He's the king. That's what everyone realizes. But not just any king. He's he's the messianic king. He's the awaited king who would ultimately bring God's kingdom and fulfill God's promises. Uh, There's prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah coming on a donkey. In fact, let's just look at one. Put a bookmark here in Luke 19. And let's go back to one of the last books of the Old Testament, just a few pages back. It's called Zechariah. It's on page 944, if you're using a pew Bible. Zechariah, chapter 9. Can I find it? Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. This is a a messianic prophecy. It was given uh, about four centuries before the coming of Jesus, so about 400 years before Christ. Zechariah, chapter 9. This was at a time when there was no king in Judah because foreign powers had uh, oppressed and subjugated Israel. <clears throat> but there's this hope that the new king's going to come back. And here's the prophecy, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so here's Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on this donkey, gentle, meek, having salvation. And everyone recognizes that that's why he's here. And so if you go back to Luke chapter 19, people see it. Like here he is. He's coming at last. Look how the people respond to Jesus coming. Verse uh, uh, 37, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. And what do they say? Verse 38, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They understood what it meant. You know, donkey seems random to me. They got it. They're like, the King is here. Of course he's the King. Look how he's arriving. He's arriving the way the king was expected to arrive. Not only that, this is even cooler. You see that quote there, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord? That's a quote from Psalm 118, which was used in biblical times as a psalm that they sang when the king entered Jerusalem on festival days. And so here's the king on a festival day, and so they say, well, let's sing the song. This is a royal psalm. So it's just amazing, this whole thing about Jesus being the king. 
And so that's the point of this story. You know, what's the point of Palm Sunday? Maybe you grew up in church and on Palm Sunday you got a little palm branch and you went home and stuck it over your bed or whatever. But like, what? why did we do that? Why is Palm Sunday important? Because that's the day when Jesus goes public with his announcement that he is in fact the king. It's like when someone's running for president, you know, and you're kind of waiting. Is this guy going to run? Is he not going to run? And then finally they make their big press announcement. I am officially running. Uh, except in this case, of course, you don't vote for kings. They just kind of are. And so Jesus now, who's been in the background doing miracles out in the desert, working, people are wondering who he is. Now he goes public with his royal identity. And so he brings the nation of Israel that day, and he brings us to a crossroads. So let's just kind of freeze frame this moment. Here's Jesus. He's riding on his donkey, and here's all the people around him cheering and celebrating his royal uh, ascension, his royal entry into Jerusalem. And, and let's just stop and think about that for a moment. Because that's the point of the story, that Jesus is the king. I mean, how does that strike you? What do you think of when you think of someone being your king? I mean, eh, I think we kind of chafe against that a little bit, if we're honest. You know, I mean, look, look how the, the Pharisees respond. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher or rabbi, interesting, they're very specific, rabbi, not king, rabbi, Rebuke your disciples. They're getting crazy. They, they've lost their minds. They're getting all caught up in this moment. They think you're the king. <laughs> of course you're not the king. Some of you should rebuke them. Look what he says. I says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. That's a great verse, isn't it? You could preach a whole sermon on that verse. I'll tell you. I told you we're going too fast through Luke. I mean, you think... Look, we're going over a whole verse. That's a whole sermon right in that verse. But we're rushing over it because we have to blaze through Luke. So anyway, he says, the stones will cry out. In other words, Jesus isn't just coming as the King of Israel. He's coming as the King, capital K, capital I, capital N, capital G, of the whole cosmos, of the rocks and the trees. And he's the King of Hingham. And he's the King of Massachusetts. And he's the king of Iraq. He reigns over the whole world. He's not coming for some little, you know, fiefdom in Palestine. He's coming for the world. And he says, if these disciples won't cry out, then guess what? The stones are going to cry out because the world will welcome me as its king. So, like I said again, what do you do with the kingship claims of Jesus? Because, mm. You know, if Jesus, you say, who's Jesus? You ask the average person on the street, who was Jesus? Someone says, well, he was a good man. It's true. He was a good man. But, you know, good man doesn't put any claims upon my life. There's lots of good people in the world. It doesn't mean I have to follow them. It doesn't mean I have to change my life to adjust to them. You say, who was Jesus? And somebody says, well, he was a good teacher. That's true. But, you know, I had some good teachers in college, too. I had some really good professors. And I learned a lot of good things from them. And... They made an impact on me. And, but you know, I don't kneel before them. I didn't swear fealty to, <laughs> to my college professors. But when someone comes in and he's not just a good man, not just a teacher, but he's like, I'm the king, and even the rocks are part of my kingdom, and I reign over all things, like, what do you do with a person like that? That's a claim that's more extreme. And so, like I said, it, it forces uh, a moment of decision. Will we receive Jesus as king or won't we? And I think we're a lot like the Pharisees. We don't instinctively 
want to have a king. Uh, you know, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, part of it is we're Americans, and of course, as Americans, that's just not part of our political um, context. We don't think in terms of kings. We have politicians that we elect, and then after we elect them, we criticize them and tear them apart. And uh, yeah, that's what we do. It's kind of conventional wisdom in our country that everybody distrusts politicians, even the ones you voted for. So there's this cynicism about political authority. And so to think of someone like a king who's claiming uh, sovereignty over us is like, whoa, no thanks. That just doesn't sit with us. I think some of us too have had very um, personal, painful experiences with people in authority misusing authority against us. Um, maybe you've been hurt in that way. You've had a boss who's totally uh, done something unethical and ruined your life and set you back for several years because they misused their power as uh, your, their employer. Maybe, maybe you've been married uh, to someone, married to a man who uh, misused his position as the head of the household uh, and he it, it was you know, abusive and critical and, and tore you down year after year and you know, that abuse of power has just like crushed you as a person and it's taken you years to try to come out from underneath that. Um, maybe you had, when you were a kid, you had some adult who misused their power. Maybe there was abuse. Maybe you experienced abuse in a religious context. Maybe you experienced uh, people who are supposed to be men and women of God using their, that authority and that trust for their own advantage and for their own, um, you know, uh, name and their own desires, and they just trampled you underfoot. And so when you hear this whole thing about, you know, a preacher standing up saying, Jesus is the king, we need to kneel at the feet of Jesus, you're like, whoa, whoa, no thanks. I've experienced this kind of abusive power in my life. It's like the dog, you know, that the owner's like, hits it and kicks it, and the dog just gets beaten. And then the dog changes hands. dog goes to a new owner. Good owner. Wonderful owner. But every time that owner makes a gesture like this, the dog, you know, cringes. Because that's just how the dog was trained. And maybe some of us are like that. It's like, oh, this stuff about Jesus being king. I can't go there. Um, and, you know, underneath it all, in addition to our cultural context and our personal experiences of the way people misuse power in the world, Underneath it all is that we're also sinners. And the thing about sinners is sinners are prideful. No matter what your experience in life is, whether you've had good experience in life or bad experience, underneath it all, we all have pride. I just don't like people telling me what to do. (laughs) Bottom line, I have pride. And to serve a king, you have to humble yourself. You have to kneel. You have to surrender your life to the king. But you know, Jesus is not like any authority figure you've ever experienced. His kingdom and his sovereignty is exercised. He's riding on a donkey. He comes gently. And why is he coming to Jerusalem? To go around bonking people on the head with his scepter? (laughs) Bonk, bonk. No. He's coming to die on a cross. He's coming to be willing to be victimized so that we could be saved. To accept a kind of abuse and mistreatment that none, no person in this room has ever experienced or will ever experience. He, he went and ex- received the worst for our salvation. 
And Jesus has come to bring peace. That's what this king is. He's the prince of peace. Look at that word peace. It occurs two times in the passage. And any time an important theological word is repeated in a passage, that's usually an indication that it's a a focal point. Look at verse 38. The people see Jesus and they're singing, Peace in heaven. And later on in verse uh, 42, Jesus says, If you, even you, had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? You see, Jesus, the king, brings peace. He brings God's peace. And, and you know, that Hebrew word for peace, you know the Hebrew word for peace? You may know it. What's the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom. Shalom is different from our word peace in English. When we think of peace in English, it's kind of narrow. We think of it as just the absence of war. That's pretty much what it means. Peace means not war. In fact, it's really politicized today. So if I started talking to you about peace, you start thinking, you know, Iraq and Bush and Rumsfeld and Cindy Sheehan and protesters and are you for the war or against the war? The word peace, shalom, is so much bigger than just war or the absence of war. Shalom means uh, wholeness. It's completeness. It's life as it's supposed to be. When you're in a state of shalom, everything is like, this is how it's supposed to be. Um, physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually, morally. It's God's shalom. And that's the other thing about shalom in the Old Testament is that it comes from God. You can't experience it apart from God's presence. God is shalom. And as we live in connection with God in an intimate, humble relationship with God, His wholeness and shalom fills up our lives. He fills up all of that brokenness and, and all of the destruction of sin and pride in our lives and He makes it complete. Uh, you know, when I think of shalom, the picture I think of in my mind is the story of the Garden of Eden in Genesis. That was shalom on earth. Because there you had Adam and Eve. They're living in perfect harmony with God. God is their king. Because, again, you can't separate the idea of kingdom from shalom. If you want the shalom of God, you have to live underneath the authority of God. And so when you live under the authority of God, his shalom fills your life. You can't say, well, look, I want the blessings of God, but I don't want to do what he says. It doesn't work that way. The peace comes from obedience. And so here's Adam and Eve. They're in the Garden of Eden. Perfect relationship with God. They're in harmony with Him. As a result, Adam and Eve are in harmony with one another. The Bible says they're naked. What does that mean? It just means that there's nothing between them. They're in a right relationship. There's no marital therapist needed in the Garden of Eden. You know, Eve's not nagging Adam. And Adam's not ignoring and criticizing Eve. They just they live the way it's supposed to be. And there's shalom in their bodies. The tree of life is there. They're eating from it. There's health. There's shalom with the environment even around them. The world is at peace. Everything's like, yeah, we know that's how it's supposed to be. And they were in it. But then the shalom went away. Why? Because Adam and Eve revolted against the kingship of God. And they said, we don't want God as our king. We don't want him reigning over us. He says, don't eat that tree. Well, guess what? We don't want to be told not to eat that tree. We're going to eat the tree. And so they eat from the forbidden fruit. And by breaking their relationship with God, by revolting against him, they also disconnect from the source of shalom. And they enter us into the world that you and I know in our lives and we see in the papers every day, a world where you can't trust politicians and you can't trust the person next door and you can't trust yourself. And there's war and there's divorce and there's anger and there's abuse and you know this messed up world in which we live. We are sinful and broken people and we live in a sinful and broken world. A world devoid of God's shalom. But Jesus came 
to bring the shalom of God. He came to reconnect us to God so that we could experience wholeness in our lives by being in right relationship with God. That's why Jesus went to the cross. He came so that our sins and our rebellion against God could be put on His shoulders. That's what we celebrate at the communion table. So that we could be forgiven. And by being forgiven of our sins, we can enter in to the peace of God again. And His wholeness can fill our lives. And so when Jesus came, look, He was healing the sick. He was taking those who were socially outcast and re-knitting them into the community. He was uh, feeding those who were hungry. And He was preaching the good news of forgiveness through faith in Him. It's all connected. You see that? And so as we're reconnected with God, His shalom fills uh, our lives and our worlds. I was reading this story. I was reading this book by a pastor this week. It was an interesting book. But he tells a story about uh, a lady in his church. Uh, her name was Yvette. And Yvette uh, came to him one day after a service. And she said, you know, I just want to be really clear. She says, I don't like this church. I don't like you. I, I disagree with everything you're saying. And when you're talking, I want to stand up in my chair and just start screaming at you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she told him that she actually was a witch. She practiced witchcraft, and, and she disagreed with everything he was saying. And the pastor in the book writes, I immediately liked her. And so he said to her, I'm so glad you're here, and you keep coming back. And he says, I hope you find this community a safe place for you to wrestle through the questions you're having and to wrestle through the doubts you have so that you can ask questions about who God is and whether or not he loves you. Well, anyway, she continued to go there. And shortly thereafter, 9-11 happens. This was several years ago. And uh, on that Sunday, uh, the, the pastor was preaching on, on 9-11 Sunday. He was preaching on the topic of forgiveness and the need to forgive. And forgiveness means that, that we don't carry around the weight of what people have done for us, but we yield it over to God. And he was talking about that whole concept. And after the service, he saw Yvette. And according to the story, she was lying on her face on the floor, sobbing uncontrollably. And so he you know, went over to her and, and found out later that what happened was she had been raped. And that anger and that resentment from that had just controlled her life. That's what had driven her into witchcraft and, and all this stuff. She was just so filled with anger for what had happened to her. Uh, and so there on the floor, she was just releasing it all to Jesus. And it was kind of like, well, as long as I'm here, I might as well just surrender to the king completely. And just surrendering her life to Christ and pouring out all that heinous garbage, both that she had done and the things that had been done to her, and surrendering herself to the king. And as she surrendered to the king, his shalom began to enter her life and make her a whole person. And, and anyway, the, the pastor goes on to tell the story that a couple, you know, sometime after that, she came up to him and handed him her email and phone number. He's like, well, what's this for? She said, well, she says, if you find any other witches who are interested in becoming Christians, send them my way. She goes, because I've been bumping into all these witch friends of mine who want to become Christians, but they don't, they're nervous. And, and so anyway, she goes, I'm kind of an expert in this now. And so anyway, he was <laughs> sending people her way. He, he said he was thinking about making a, a WA group, you know, which is anonymous. <laughs> And I'll tell you what, some of us here need to enter into the shalom of God. But to get there, you have to embrace His kingship over your life. And, and don't be turned off by that, because it's the one surrendering in your life that you'll never regret. Jesus has never abused anybody. He's never broken His word.
He's never turned on anybody. He is the righteous king who comes humbly on a donkey and he brings wholeness into our lives. And I think even as Christians, we need to keep pursuing God's shalom in our lives. You know, there's a lot of Christians. I mean, let's just be honest. There's a lot of Christians who I believe really know Jesus and are really saved and are really going to go to heaven. But you know what? They're just kind of nasty people. There's some really mean people. Really critical, negative Christians. Some Christians who are really angry people. Some Christians who are control freaks. And that's because, of course, you know, when we're saved, we're not made perfect, but we begin a process of entering into God's shalom. And, and so as, as Christians, I think part of the Christian journey is, is continuing to surrender more and more of our lives to the Lordship of Jesus so that his healing can come into our lives. And I think as a lot of us are Christians, like, well, I'm a Christian now and I go to church and I'm fine and, and we think we're done. And, and, you know, you have a lot of work to do on your character. So do I. I have a lot of work to do in my character. I look at some things in my life and I say, you know, I just don't like it. It's ugly. It's not pleasing to God. And I'm broken still. I'm still a broken person in many ways, many profound ways. And so are you. And, and so even as Christians, we need that shalom of God to keep working itself out in our lives to become more and more like the character of Jesus. Jesus, take away my anger. Replace it with gentleness. Jesus, take away my pride and replace it with humility. Take away my anxiety and replace it with faith. Take away my judgmentalness and replace it with a gracious attitude. Take away my foul mouth and my critical mouth and replace it with a mouth full of praises and blessings. Take away my filth and replace it with purity. God, I want to be like you. I want your character, Jesus, to fill me so that I might become whole. But alas, so often we reject the king and so we reject the peace. We don't want to have anyone over us, but as a result, we enter into further destruction. And so that's what happens here. Look at verse 41, just to finish up the story real quick. It says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Why was Jesus crying? Was the donkey uncomfortable? Uh, was he caught up in the drama of the moment and it just sort of carried him away to tears? No, he's weeping over the city, Jerusalem, because he knows that on the whole it's not going to respond to him the way that it needs to. It's going to reject him. And so he's weeping over Jerusalem. He says, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you shalom. And what would bring him shalom? Jesus himself. But now it is hidden from you. Jesus knows that even though it's Palm Sunday, on Good Friday, he's going to be born out of the city, not on a donkey, but bearing a cross. He knows that he's going to be rejected. And so he's weeping. He's weeping over the city. These are prophetic tears, weeping over the coming judgment of God. Because here's the thing. If you reject God and reject Christ and reject Him and reject Him and reject Him and reject Him, at some point you're rejected yourself. You can't revolt against the king of righteousness forever. You can't revolt against the king who would die for you without consequence. And so what happens when the, when the king finally has to put down the rebellion? So there is that side of it. You know what hell is? Hell is the opposite of shalom. Forever and ever. It's the place of judgment upon those who would reject such a gracious 
merciful Savior and spit upon his cross as if it was nothing and deny him. And so he, he doesn't says this prophecy of judgment against the people of Jerusalem. You know, the days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you. And uh, basically that happened about 40 years after Jesus said this. In 70 A.D., uh, the Romans surrounded Jerusalem and the Roman general Titus uh, took Jerusalem and destroyed it. It was raised, it was sacked. And why? Verse 44, last sentence. I'll leave you with this. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Do you recognize God's coming to you? Do you see it or is it just like, Phew. <laughs> do you see God's coming to you? You know, it's like we're, we're studying the words of Jesus. Jesus is here. He's in this room through his Holy Spirit. He's risen. He's alive. He's not dead. He's not way long ago. He's here right now. Through his Holy Spirit, he's with us. When his word is preached, he's present among his people. When his, uh, you know, God inhabits the praises of his people, when we're praising Jesus, he's present with us to heal and to forgive. We're about to eat the Lord's Supper right here. You know, Jesus is the host of the Lord's Supper. He's not literally those elements. It's not that those things magically become him. But he's here with us to spiritually feed us and to nurture us to the Lord's Supper. And do you know where else Jesus is? He's in all the people right around you. The Bible calls the church the body of Christ. There are people right now that you may be touching who, in a sense, you are actually touching Jesus because this is His body. And maybe the people who've been loving you and reaching out to you and praying for you is Jesus coming in a visitation upon you and you're missing it because it's just boom, right over your head just like the Israelites. And so don't, don't have Jesus weep over you. Receive Him as your King. Receive the blessings that He comes to bring for you. Receive the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we worship You. You are the Prince of Peace. We love You. We bow before You. And Lord, we joyfully and gleefully bend our knee before You, our Sovereign King, because we know that only in You is there true freedom. Only in becoming uh, enslaved to You do we find freedom. Only in dying to You do we find life. Only in yielding to You do we find strength and, and joy and wholeness. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that You would make us a church of happy servants of the King, that we might go out of here rejoicing over you, just like those disciples rejoiced over you as they went into Jerusalem. And as people ask us what it is that's so joyful about us, we might tell them that we've found wholeness in Christ, that for, there's forgiveness and peace. And now as we come to the communion table, we pray, Jesus, that you would meet us in this moment, that this would be a sacred moment for us as a church, that we would experience your presence, that you would minister to the hurts of your people, that the brokenness that is present in this room, Jesus, would be would be addressed and, and healed through your death on the cross, that the sins that are present in this room might be confessed, and that there might be forgiveness flowing forth from you, Jesus. And we pray that as we, we gather at the communion table, you would enable us to see the beauty of your sacrifice in a fresh way. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd meet us now in this holy, holy table, this holy institution. We pray this in your name. Amen. As we come to the Lord's table, we come